1: Welcome to another episode. This is your co-host, Aurelia Flores. The intersection of fashion and technology continues to grow and transform how we shop, style, and coordinate our clothes and accessories, as well as all sorts of things that we don't think about behind the scenes. Today, we are going to talk with Lisa Morales-Hellebo. Lisa Morales-Hellebo is a VC, seasoned entrepreneur, Product strategist and creative director with a career spanning 25 years working with startups to Fortune 500s on strategy and execution across branding, products, and innovation. She is currently a co founder of the New York Supply Chain Meetup and the Worldwide Supply Chain Federation, and is a co founder and general partner of Refashioned Ventures, a New York City based early stage supply chain technology venture fund investing in startups refashioning global supply chains. In 2014, Lisa founded and launched the New York Fashion Tech Lab with Springboard Enterprises and the Partnership Fund for NYC while serving as executive director for the first year. Lisa's previous fashion tech startup, Shopsy, raised capital and participated in Techstars in 2012 after she was selected as one of the top 10 women in DC tech. (laughs) She's been featured in (laughs) numerous publications and media outlets and is profiled in the best-selling book, Disruptors, Success Strategies from Women Who Break the Mold. Lisa is active in the startup community, serves on the board of Puerto Rican Accelerator Parallel 18 and mentors at the Startup Institute and the Founder Institute. Lisa, what don't you do? (laughs) Goodness. (laughs) Born in the Bronx, New York, Lisa went to college in Pittsburgh where she received her BFA in graphic design with university honors from Carnegie Mellon University. She's a lifelong lover of all things fashion, is addicted to new media technology, entrepreneurship and travel. And while living in Norway with her husband for nearly three years, she freelanced and learned the language. Wow. Adding fluent Norwegian to her list of accomplishments. She currently lives in the New York City suburbs of Westchester County with her husband, two sons, and a rescue mutt named Rocky. And Lisa just mentioned to us, she's just coming off her first ever two-day global supply chain summit, first annual, which they held at Microsoft. It's called Skit. So SKIT 2019, Supply Chain Innovation Technology, and she had folks there that came from all over the world. Lisa, we're so delighted to have you on our show.
0: Thank you so much. It sounds exhausting when all my stuff is read out loud. Goodness.
1: (laughs) Well, you know when you're that accomplished, what are you going (laughs) to do?
2: Lisa, I want to be you when I grow up. Wow.
0: Oh, Thank you.
1: So you've I'm still got
0: working on who I want to be when I grow up.
1: <laughs> Aren't we all?
0: Aren't we all?
1: <laughs> well, you've done so many different things. When did you know entrepreneurship was an option for you?
0: You know, I was a late bloomer or um, a little slow on the uptake. It took me until I was 37 years old uh, with two kids and a mortgage and married <laughs> to realize that people like me, women, minorities, uh, moms, could actually be founders of their own tech companies. It always seemed like something that was just for the bro white boy that was 20-something in Silicon Valley. And so even though I'd worked in Silicon Valley during the first dot-com boom in 99, 2000, 2001, and I'd helped other tech companies scale from startup to exit, it never seemed like something that was for me. And so I was, I'm eternally grateful for the DC Tech startup community because it was really uh, the people of the community that pushed me to speak at the DC Tech meetup in front of a thousand people and then to apply to Techstars and get in. It really was a matter of the community making me realize what I was working on and what I was building was exceptional and that entrepreneurship is an option for people like me.
1: Well, let's go back just a minute because we've, most of your bio, we focused on what you've done in the startup space, which is incredible. And I think our listeners might be really curious. Tell us a little bit about what you did in the Silicon Valley during the first dot-com boom and bust. And I was in and around that space at that time too, because I think it, in, a, in some really interesting ways it kind of led to where you are now.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, I have a degree from – Carnegie Mellon in graphic design, so um, design thinking has served me extremely well. I have just a a curious mind, and so I've applied design thinking to everything I've done throughout my career, and anytime I've hit sort of a barrier of something that I don't know, I teach myself, like coding, like taxonomies and schema development, like database architecture. And so when I was out in Silicon Valley in 99, I uh, was fortunate enough to be hired at a company called Reflect.com. We were owned by Procter & Gamble and Red Point Ventures, and it basically was on-demand, customized, personalized, cosmetic skincare, hair care, and fine fragrance. Nothing existed until you created it online. We had a micro-manufacturing facility in Ohio, and back then, I mean, doing all that stuff so was way ahead of the curve. So I just was having a blast being 20 something, being able to play with data, user experience, algorithms, and personalization. It was the time of my life. And I realized that more than just asking a woman to come to our site and create a product, we had a massive opportunity of leveraging all the data we had on her, even if she just created one product. Yeah. We could make inferences about other products to make recommendations. So I came up with the first uh, virtual personal shopper campaign for email uh, to send out to women who've created one product, uh, a lipstick or eyeshadows, et cetera, that are based on things that we knew about her. And within a month of re-architecting the skincare line, our skincare sales nearly quadrupled. Um, So I got to present to the board, including AG Lassie and Jeff Yang, which still to this point in my massive career, I think is a highlight, having AD last week walk over and shake my hand and say, congratulations, we finally have a brand here. Wow. Um, doing things like peer-to-peer marketing, long before there was social, to truly represent that customization is about real people solving their real needs. And when you leverage data, personalization, and customization to uh, serve your customers, it's not seen as marketing, it's seen as value-add.
1: Yeah, like we, we, we are data geeks, so we love that data stuff. We'll get into that <laughs> a little bit, um, but tell us a little bit about fashion supply chains. So you obviously were kind of in a market that was adjacent to fashion supply chains, mm-hmm. but how did you get into fashion supply chains in specific?
0: How did you land there? Yeah, so I've been obsessed with fashion since I was a little girl. I can remember when I was like I don't know, six years old, I'd asked my mom to get me uh, magazines from neighbors, Vogue, Elle, Bazaar, so that I could cut them up and redo the layouts. That was play for me at that age. Um, lo and behold, I didn't know that was a career. <laughs> and <laughs> so when I applied to Carnegie Mellon, they were like, you're a designer. <laughs> um, so I have kind of just steered my career to work on the things that I truly love and am passionate about. And then Realized there was an opportunity at this intersection magical point in time where the fashion industry was massively in need of people like me that knew the other side of the equation, that were born and raised in the tech era, that could play with data and help um, with merchandising, customization, personalized recommendations, and eventually get to the point where we're looking at a flip. In the ecosystem and the whole paradigm of the industry as we've seen where vogue and all the pundits you know have decreed on high what everyone shall wear this season <laughs> and if you're in or you're out now it's flipped and it's bottom up it's the people telling the industry what they find stylish and what they find beautiful and it's redefined the um everything in the ecosystem so i think that this, this is the perfect time to leverage everything that's I've accumulated in my career to help steer the industry where I believe it needs to go. And I've just taken the reins and said, you know, somebody's got to orchestrate this. Might as well be me.
1: So is there a specific moment or piece of the story that you can say this led me to found Refashioned? Or is it was it really more of this kind of... Multiple data points coming together to converge in the wait a minute, this just makes sense.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll say there are a couple of key things throughout my life that have led me to it. You know, when I moved out to Silicon Valley, um, I moved there at the peak of the dot com boom, didn't know anyone, and had no idea that the bubble was going to burst so soon. But if I hadn't gone out there, I would have never gotten that critical experience at reflect.com that sort of steered the trajectory for my entire career and gave me insights that people still don't have, you know, almost two decades later. So um, I think that was pivotal. I think that applying to Techstars was also a major pivotal point in my career. Um, It's seen as sort of a a checkmark, another like, oh, you went to Carnegie Mellon, check. You are a tech i woman. Check. Mm. You, you're receiving these credentials, and they not only were credentialing me for the world to see me in a different light, but also for myself. I think that, um, I don't know, as a woman or a person of color, we tend to not see ourselves to our full potential as easily as maybe some other people do and I think a lot of it is external voices as well as our own internal voices, keeping us into a specific little box. But getting into Techstars obviously gave me that tech box. Um, Having a client that was the top, represented the top 1% of minority wealth in the country, the Marathon Club, when I had my own agency for five years, um, and going to their event, their annual event, walking into a room full of black and brown people, that were millionaires and billionaires, and them turning to me and saying, "Well, what is what is your contribution going to be?" Mm-hmm. And I felt like um, what is it, baby, and uh, Dirty Dancing, where she's like, "I carried the watermelon." <laughs> 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 I was like, "I did the graphics," I you saw that movie.
2: <laughs> and they
0: said, "No, what else are you going to contribute?" There's so much more yeah. that you have to offer the world. And they started expecting more of me. Yeah. And I think that surrounding yourself with people that have achieved what you wish to achieve and that hold you accountable to expecting more from yourself is really critical. And who have
3: the mindset uh, yeah, go <laughs> and who have the mindset that to whom much is given, much is required, right? And so as you're yes. getting these accomplishments, giving back. Yeah, that's beautiful.
1: Well, and, but I think it is an interesting pivot, right, from, from saying, okay, I'm going to be a startup founder and I'm going to be in the startup ecosystem to, wait a minute, I'm going to raise money and I'm going to be a VC. <laughs> and not everybody yeah, makes that, that shift.
0: That really, that really was a massive insight from being in Techstars and talking to tons of the top VCs. I realized crystal clear that um, VCs invest in what they know. And in people they'd like to hang out with and go grab a brewski with. (laughs) Um, And most VCs happen to be men. Um, Unfortunately, I experienced a lot of what almost every single female founder I know has experienced when raising capital. From walking into the room and the first time I pitch having an angel investor saying, what is it, bring your daughter to work day? Maybe next month I'll bring in one of my little girls and she'll share some of her ideas or before I even open my mouth, coming over and touching my arm inappropriately mm. and saying, oh, sweetie, you're so pretty. You should have just married better like that Tory Birch." before I get to open my mouth to share any of the values that I bring to the dialogue. And I asked these VCs, how many male founders have you ever started a meeting like that? With? Exactly. You know, mm. so it was a number of of variables that led me to constantly be asking myself why why is nobody investing in fashion tech why mm. is nobody investing in the fashion supply chain and so after i got through TechStars, struggled to raise capital we ended up ultimately failing with shopseed literally the day after i pulled the plug i got a call from the head of asos global innovation And was like what (laughs) and she said well what happened we've been following you you made something we need we've never seen before and she said you know we're sick of all the social apps that VCs are funding they're not really adding value innovations like what you've built are what we need and I said well that sucks because we're fully dissolved Um, and we talked about potential acquisition but you know uh, fashion companies didn't want to hire teams of data scientists back in 2013. So yeah. instead of going into a founder depression, I figured I'd build the first ever fashion tech accelerator that was really truly partnered with the C-suite champions within the big brands and retailers, Macy's, Crew, Kate Spade, Rotherham, Leansong, et cetera, to not only hand-select the startups that were looking to serve them, but to give them access to anything within their company to help them get to a pilot or paid client customer you know that's far more valuable than just raising capital when you're selling B2B. So the insights from that actually led me to focus just on supply chain. Talking to the C-suite behind closed doors for the better part of a year, I realized they don't know as much as they like to tell the world they know. Uh, they're relying on consultants that tell them incremental innovation changes are what's needed and they're blind to the disruption that is coming so um investing in agile front-end consumer facing experiences with a static back end i saw as the major opportunity so i left what i had just built at the fashion tech lab and went to study supply chains for a year uh and that's about when i met my co-founder brian brian long away he was a vc at a fund that i admired and the first time we met I said, Brian, I'm thinking about joining somebody else's fund to build a fashion supply chain specific vertical. And he said, that's a horrible idea. <laughs> that's probably the worst idea I've ever heard. And I was like, damn it, you already are out of fun. Easy for you to say. And he said, no, I've met thousands of people that uh, want to build funds. And you by far are the most qualified to actually have a fund. You know more about this subject matter than anyone I've ever met. You're passionate about it. it. um you have the networks for it. You need to build your own fund. And so here we are, building our fund.
2: So how did you come up with the word, um, the name refashioned?
0: You know, I, um, I initially was looking at things that were specifically fashion related and then um, wanted something that was speaking to change or a constant of change. And I loved the word refashioned because you're refashioning systems. It's kind of an older word that people don't generally use as much lately, but it speaks to everything that I wanted to convey. We are, obviously, my background is in fashion tech and supply chain. Um, it's a lovely homage to all global supply chains being refashioned at this critical point in time with the fourth industrial revolution and cyber physical systems, localization, climate change, you know, uh, trade wars, all of these factors are requiring that every single supply chain is refashioned.
1: And I just want to point out, I think it's so powerful that in this fantastic and impressive career that really what was one of the pivotal moments was this quote unquote failure that you then turned <laughs> around and now you're doing something even more incredible. Mm-hmm. And I really, I really just want to highlight that for people and I really want to also thank you for being so you know, authentic and vulnerable because I think a lot of founders think if they fail, then it's the end and it clearly is not the end. We've talked to a lot of founders where it's just the beginning.
0: Right, right. absolutely. You know, um, sometimes you don't get what you want, you get what you need. And, <laughs> and I absolutely needed to uh, go through building, re- uh, building the New York, uh, New York Fashion Tech Lab um, because that was a catalyst for me to get through my founder depression <laughs> and help others not go through what I had just went through. And also it helped me to realize what needed to be the focus of my attention. It helped me to see that the global fashion supply chain is a nearly $3 trillion uh, market. And yet all that VCs have been investing in are patterns they can match to and understand, like e-commerce. Okay, it's a brand that happens to be sold online, like Nasty Gal. I can't tell you how many VCs told me, oh, sweetie, why don't you just buy some inventory like that nasty gal? Mm-hmm. And I would stare at them, scratching my head, like, why are they letting you cut checks if you can't tell the difference between a traditional e-commerce brand that you are <laughs> valuing as if it was some tech company mm-hmm. and the future of search, which is what I've built, a contextual search engine? Oh, is it because they're both displaying fashion on the, in the user uh, interface? That's, that's a problem. So $250 billion of investment into the front-end consumer-facing experience is all that's been deployed. That paltry sum out of a $3 trillion market, the rest of that opportunity is in the supply chain. Hmm.
3: Yeah, and to add on to that, the powerful story about failure, I have an idea. It's a T-shirt idea, and it's called Don't Just Follow Me, <laughs> Fund Me, right? So a big, big part of that story was someone's following you the day after you dissolve, they're talking yeah. about potential partnership, and that just shows don't just follow, fund someone, you know, support them, talk to them early on in the process, um, so yeah. I, thank you for sharing that. A couple of things that you said resonated with me, and I want to just kind of dive into one. One, you talked about the future being truly in asexual inter, oh,
2: Christina's, but on your mind anyway.
3: We're going to cut that.
2: <laughs> I actually want to keep it. That <laughs> <laughs> show's another side <laughs> of her. Keep it. That's
0: a whole other piece. <laughs> the future. Different, different
3: show. The, the future is truly intersectional. I'm sorry the kids are gone that's all I got to say my husband and I have been we have two weeks without the kids I'm sorry (laughs) Uh, so so like you I you know two kids I'm married and had a career and decided at the age of 40 to actually start my own business I won't say I'm an entrepreneur I'll say I'm a business owner so your story resonates with me And one of the things that we have in common is thinking, you know, you're pulling two or multiple worlds that you've lived together, and so you're uniquely built to do the work that you're doing now. And one of those things is actually building partnerships and building ecosystems, which my team, everyone knows that that's what I love. So how important has like the partnerships and building the ecosystem been important to your strategy?
0: Sure, Um, so Brian and I actually started off building our New York supply chain meetup. We uh, kind of started partnering together because Brian impulsively went on meetup.com and said, there's got to be a meetup that I could hang out with other supply chain nerds. And Meetup.com is surprised. intersectional. <laughs> yeah, on, on meetup.com. He was like, it's New York City. There's got to be a supply chain meetup. Well, there wasn't. And so he uh, quietly reserved the domain, the New York supply chain meetup, and he posted a comment about it on his private Facebook page to his friend. And because he was already Mr. Fancy Pants VC, Mattermark Daily picked up his private Facebook post and sent out a n- mm. newsletter overnight to their 150,000 uh, person list saying Brian Longaway of KC Ventures has just founded and launched the New York supply chain meetup. <laughs> and his friend started tweeting at him the next day, like, congratulations, oh, my God. And he's like, what? <laughs> and then he, he realized what had happened. And he called me frantically. I've done something stupid. Can you help me? And I said, you, you founded a company. He's like, wait, no, what? I, I just wanted to have an event once a month. I said, no, you founded a company. And he was like, well, will you co-found with me? I said, Sure. So he was my spirit guide into into VC, and I was his spirit guide into actually building and scaling a, a company and community, as I had done with the Fashion Tech Lab and um, being part of the DC Tech community and Puerto Rico Tech. Um, so he and I realized we needed a community because the, the biggest uh, variable for success is access and opportunity. And not only for ourselves, but for everyone. If we're investing in supply chain, if we're interested in supply chain, we need a global ecosystem of the best of emerging supply chain talent, as well as the most engaged enterprise companies. Mm-hmm. So in founding the New York Supply Chain Meetup, we were shocked that at our first event, we thought maybe 30 other people would show up but it was about 150 people standing room only we had to kick people out at the end of the night and we're looking at each other like what just happened (laughs) (laughs) we think it's kind of like group therapy these people have always been the bastard stepchildren of their organization and we're telling them they're the heroes Mm -hmm. because supply chains are converging and supply chains are now part of your consumer facing experience whether you like it or not they always have been but because it's social, it's far more apparent when a supply chain is broken. People don't – supply chains are like air, oxygen. You uh, don't recognize it. You don't, you know, say, oh, great oxygen today. <laughs> you just mm-hmm. breathe. But so when there's little mm-hmm. oxygen, uh, you definitely notice it. You're starting to struggle to breathe and you're having problems. Same thing with supply chains. When it's not working right is when everyone starts to get bent out of shape. So it can make or break a brand as everyone has seen with Amazon. And yet so few companies are understanding the power of their supply chains. Oh. Um, so we started with the community and ended up having all kinds of people from around the world after our first event reaching out to us saying, how do we replicate this where we are from every corner of the planet? <laughs> and we thought, well, we're just getting started. Give us a minute. And within probably six months, we started to talk to different locations about finding the Brian and Lisa in Bangalore, in Germany, in Greece, all over, uh, so that we can start building chapters locally there.
3: Wow, that was a great analogy about just the, the breathing, no, mm-hmm. really, and, and really, you know, taking that grassroots effort and building community and making it social and powerful. I mean, one of the things you mentioned earlier was sometimes we don't see ourselves to our fullest potential. And it seems like the people mm-hmm. that you're attracting are those that have the potential that just needed the access, opportunity, and support system around them. So that, that's awesome. Um, one thing that you mentioned earlier as well was around your experience with Techstars and the credentials and, and that building you know, essentially credibility. So what mm-hmm. lessons did you learn from participating in Techstars? And I think more importantly, what advice would you give founders who have the opportunity to participate in a, an accelerator or get that type of experience and credibility?
0: Yeah, so I'd say that accelerators are like getting your MBA in three and a half months, um, you know, it with, through blood, sweat, and tears. It is not for the faint of heart. Having built an accelerator um, I had people from around the world calling me and saying, "No, I want to apply to your accelerator, but I'm married and I have children. I can't leave them for three months." Everyone, but you know, it's something to discuss with your family and to get buy-in and to make sure that this is a choice that you and everyone around you is supporting, because it does take a community. So, I think that all the accelerators give you unprecedented access to investors and potential partners um, in such a condensed, uh, hyper-accelerated timeline that it it can be good for pretty much any business. The one caveat is that if you don't already have your product market fit, it can slam you into a wall. Just because you're accelerating doesn't mean you're accelerating in the right direction. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So so I'd say be wary of that. Um, I think one of the things that was really helpful for me was being one of only two female founders in my cohort, uh, the very first day that we got there, I was super intimidated. You know, 14 companies, there were literal rocket scientists in my cohort as founders. I was like, I'm this little old mom tinkering with some databases and algorithms and contextual search in my basement. <laughs> and uh, once we actually got around the first weekend to going out and drinking and showing each other what we were building with, amongst all the founders, all the guys turned to me and said, damn, you've built the most valuable thing mm-hmm. in this cohort. I was like, what? Little old me? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think it's really important to, if you're creating anything, one of the things I learned is it's only going to get better the more you share it. The more founders mm-hmm. are um, afraid to share their innovations with the world, the the more stagnant you're going to be and the less um, ability to improve. So, getting mm-hmm. the feedback from everyone within Techstars and even my cohort it showed me that anything that's of value, you need to share with the world to improve it. Yeah, we actually were
3: just talking about that earlier around doing market research and customer validation, and how so often many startup founders are afraid or they delay communicating because they don't quote unquote want someone to steal their idea or they don't want to be judged. And so our message, too, is get out there, get started, get feedback early from your peers, from your, cu- your potential customers, uh, and move forward from that way.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it's so important to know that the vast majority of time, the value is not in the idea itself. It's in the execution. And what yep. you were saying is it's also in the iteration mm-hmm. of the execution, And I think that's so important.
3: And engagement during execution. Absolutely. That's awesome.
2: This is Zena. I wanted to know, what do companies experience with Refashioned when they pitch to you and or become a portfolio company?
0: Oh, I love this question. (laughs) I will say that um, so Brian and I, I believe, are a perfect yin and yang. He has arrived at supply chains because he grew up in Ghana in a village in the countryside where his, his family was raising goats and chickens. Um, and my family grew up in the mountains of Puerto Rico as pig farmers. So both of us come from uh, ecosystems and emerging economies that directly are impacted by incremental changes in supply chains, which has led for us, obviously, our passion about this bleeds through. And because of that passion, we've had an ecosystem of people that seek us out. So one example is um, through LinkedIn. We love talking about our community and what we're working on and getting feedback on our thoughts um, through LinkedIn. And it led to an amazing new founder uh, who was pre-seed reaching out to me Mm -hmm. with her uh, startup ecosystem um, of Manufacturers across Europe. It's com- the company is called Milaner, like Milan, the city with an E R. The website is by Milaner, by Milaner.com, and he's created this amazing, uh, simple concept coming from Italy. She was born and raised in Italy, and she and her girlfriends used to go to the factories that produce. Uh, luxury leather goods for Prada, Versace, Gucci, Ferragamo, et cetera, because they were in her village and her family also worked in this space. So they would get custom uh, leather boots made to their taste, picking the leathers themselves. And then when she left Italy and worked in Silicon Valley at Apple and Google and top tech companies for a good part of her career – she went back to the realization that the brand of Made in Italy is a massive asset in and of itself and that the movement of the entire industry towards customized, special, mm-hmm. artisanal and luxury quality, but customized and on demand made for you was a massive opportunity. So she came to me with this platform and I said, Do you realize what you have? You have over fifty brand or fifty factories across Italy, Spain and France currently producing everything from um, artisanal hats, shoes, bags, jewelry, uh, knitwear. It's exceptional. These are all the factories that produce for the top luxury brands around the world but now have excess capacity. And she's created a platform for these factories to create their most uh, beloved products using the techniques that their families have taken generations to to craft and learn, and selling them direct-to-consumer at direct-to-consumer pricing. So being able to get a luxury leather made-to-measure jacket at a factory that produces them for Prada, but you can get that jacket just for you for around $650. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I said, oh my God, this is going to be the future of the luxury supply chain. Mm -hmm. You need to understand that the, the end game is not just selling these products at the factory's design. You are the future of the apparel supply chain, connecting you with influencers and celebrities and even uh, existing large luxury brands to produce on-demand capsule collections and drops. Picture Blake Lively doing a collaboration with Louis Vuitton for an exclusive capsule collection only available at Con. That. Is what her supply chain now can offer. That's and because they're limited quantity, they become that much more valuable.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So, giving her, giving these companies perspective of where they fit in the larger global ecosystem and tying it back to my 25 years in tech and my extensive enterprise network, understanding where the SAPs and Lianfengs and Walmarts of the world. Uh, are going and where the opportunities still lie, I think adds tremendous value to uh, the companies in our portfolio. And that's why they keep seeking us out. Mm.
2: That is really interesting. And on that same vein, um, we recently had Sharifa Murdoch of Liberty Fashion on, and, fa- and Lifestyle Affairs on the show. And she shared a few trends in the fashion space. And you're sort of kind of talking about this now. What are some of the trends that you see?
0: Ah, the trends towards localization. Obviously localization, customization, and personalization on demand have been my obsession since I worked at Reflect in 99. So um, after taking the year off to study the apparel supply chain and its current paradigm back in 2015, I came up with my own sort of thesis around where the future of the apparel supply chain would go. and it all tied back to on-demand. What I was doing in Silicon Valley in 99, why is everybody not seeing this? What is possible now that we have the fourth industrial revolution, cyber physical systems, IOT, stuff that we didn't have back then that's possible now, and came up with this paradigm shift where if we take the concept of a distributed collaborative network and then taking it out of the digital world, like blockchain and crypto, and made it a physical network of distributed collaborative micro-manufacturing hubs across the region with a shared data layer and shared localized logistics um, and shared regional raw materials. That becomes your volume, the raw material, Hmm. and the end product is now one-off. Everything is done on demand, which gets to what the consumer wants. They want me, me, me. I want it now, when I want it, how I want it, made to measure. Guess what the the brands want? They have had $50 billion in dead stock just last year alone in the U.S. That's unacceptable. This is textile waste that goes to landfill or is incinerated. Toxic on the way into the world, Mm. toxic on the way out. So... Even removing a billion dollars per brand of that dead stock Mm -hmm. is massive. You know, why are we chasing this race to the bottom of 90% off that people still won't buy the inventory at when you can actually flip the paradigm and have it on demand, only produce what your consumer has purchased? (laughs) It's a massive shift. And so I've been working towards aligning some huge global uh, apparel holding companies and brands behind this paradigm shift because it requires collaboration Mm -hmm. this can only be done through collaborative networks and brands that value the sustainability circularity that's possible
3: absolutely and lisa because you mentioned blockchain and crypto and Mm -hmm. you're working in emerging markets i'm just curious if you have any initial thoughts on how facebook libra calibra may impact or not, kind of the markets that you're working with and what you're seeing as trends?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. So, of course, I've been curious about crypto, and I think that um, within the blockchain notification of the world, crypto is its own separate slice. Mm-hmm. Um, blockchain for supply chains I think makes a lot more sense. It's really a, a, a new type of network or database that requires collaboration transparency and authentication Um, trust whereas other databases can be um, you know self-propagating with zero transparency or authenticity like facebook and craigslist or they could be top-down centralized which works for certain scenarios crypto um, i think we're still at kind of earlier stages of it because it like all currencies it will eventually require some form of regulation and government involvement. Mm -hmm. Um, So my co-founder, Brian, is a researcher, and he read tons of books on crypto. And there was one in particular, I forget the name of it, but it was about um, the history of money. And he said, you know, all currencies only have value when they are agreed to by uh, multiple governments. So... Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right now, we're in the wild, wild west, and I think Facebook is trying to create that uh, validity. But they, in and of themselves, are not a government, and we're right, kind of right. getting into a little bit of gray area, scary space where we're giving corporations sovereignty that usually governments have had. Right it's and. That, I think, is going to require
3: some regulation. Yeah, I completely agree. We could have a whole conversation on this. (laughs) But I think think one of the biggest things is that we're going through a transformation, and it's going to require another mindset of how we think about a bank, what is a bank, how we think about the value of something, how we exchange value, and then how we look at emerging markets and export and import, right? So I'm going to leave it at there because I might get on a a rant about that.
2: (laughs) No, I have a lot (laughs) lot to say about that. (laughs) And I agree with a lot of things that you're saying. Um, New technologies are creating opportunities and causing changes in the supply chain. We recently held a whiteboard and wine series. It was our first one, actually, as our graphic designer for Get Found Good Funding. She is a very talented woman. Um, Sounds very familiar like you. You know, she started us, (laughs) and when you were talking, I started seeing Micaiah in my Mm -hmm. head, to be honest with you. And it's so funny that we are talking about this. Um, She's designed some new footwear, and um, she's using 3D printing to um, develop product prototypes. And uh, she's going to start off by developing one-off concepts. So what advice do you give as she builds her brand and refines the product? And I'm going to give you a little time to t- think, about, think about it, because Whiteboard and Wine is a session that we're doing with founders, and uh, we're bringing, bringing together um, experts to help that founder. Then um, we're just whiteboarding whatever their questions may have and then some of the ideas. It's like a mastermind. And um, after that, we celebrate and um, with wine, and then we ask that family to champ- come or back champagne, or champagne or champagne, whatever or rosé. works. And we come and uh, and they're supposed to come back with you know, you know, the, their homework. Basically, we give them homework and next steps, and they're supposed to come back to us. So that's what the whiteboard and wine session is. And so um, she was scared as we talked about earlier about sharing her product and design, she was very nervous about it and she's scared somebody's going to steal it because it is a pretty, it's a really good concept. So um, what, what do you, what advice do you have as she builds her brand and refines her product? Mind you, it's sketches. She did build the first prototype on a uh, 3D printing, but she has some ways to go. But what are your thoughts?
0: Yeah. So I've actually um, helped launch uh, CPD products in the past, and specifically a shoe company, mm-hmm. um, it has changed. The whole game has changed from companies like Shoes of Prey that recently uh, went under and in their going under, they announced, we believe that customization is not desired by the end consumer. What? What? <laughs> No, Just because you you and your execution of it was not what they wanted doesn't mean that customization isn't uh, a a requirement for consumers. They are definitely demanding it. There's just different ways to execute it. But I'd say with um, shoes, I've seen tons of shoe lines being launched because the whole – um, production process is becoming really democratized. Actually, at our uh, Skit Summit last week in New York at Microsoft, we had a company fly in from Italy called Elf uh, Corp, and Elf Corp is partnered with Atom Labs. Elf Corp does the front end for Agile Retail as a service, where you can, as a consumer, design your own shoe, matching it algorithmically to last that they've uh, pre-populated so that anyone designing any type of shoe can actually be produced. Um, And it's all rendered real-time on demand with uh, detailed fabric textures. Um, It's really unbelievable. You can see your finished shoe in 3D and have it scanned to the measurements of your feet and hit purchase. And when you hit purchase it goes to the robotic um, sort of co-creation where you have some human hand, some robotics, producing the shoes in minutes on demand just for you. Wow. So these types of innovations, I think, are drastically impacting not only time to market, but what's possible with shoe design. There's um, a lot of different angles that different brands are taking, whether it's customization or being sustainable like a you know, using recycled materials or even having circularity built into them, else their soles of their shoes that are sneakers are recycled plastic, and and you can actually pop off the sole and pop on a new one so you don't have to throw away a pair of shoes because the sole is, mm. is dead. So I think anyone that's working in the shoe space needs to be thinking about how they're going to stand out, what their unique offering is to their consumer, and maybe it is just something niche. I have another friend who has no special sauce as far as the technology in the shoe but she's designed a line of nude pumps that just recognize that nude is a different shade for every human being so she has like um, some of these underwear lines and um, ballet slippers even now she's created a different hue to represent different skin tones so that everyone can have a quote-unquote nude shoe whether you're dark black from Africa or your Puerto Rican uh, you know, mixed blood, or your um pale Irish, it's all nude. Oh, wow. that's
1: amazing. You're blowing our minds over here. Right. With all this technology I don't know what to <laughs> say after that. They're,
2: that's <laughs> awesome.
3: Well it's great that there's so many technology innovations that want help people who have concepts get to market or actually get to um, product faster, so minimal viable product, but then also sustainable, right? As a, as a consumer, being able to preserve a shoe. Oh my goodness. I'm just thinking about that in my closet right now, how many shoes I have that I can't wear unless I take it in to get the you know heels or the sole fixed. So I, I just think it's it's amazing the innovation that we're seeing in this space and small business owners and creatives actually Capitalizing on that,
0: mm-hmm. I think the the space for circularity and waste being your new raw materials
3: mm-hmm.
0: is a really important underinvested segment. Where again, people are kind of looking at um, circularity as this earthy, crunchy, feel good impact investment. It's like charity. No, it is a it's a business mandate, if you can take something that has been an expense on your on your business and turn it into a, a profit center, like Queen of Raw, she pre- uh, presented at Skit last week as well. She has created a marketplace of all the excess textile waste after brands produce their line. You know, say Mark Jacobs has 100 yards of extra uh, yardage raw silk. It's sitting there in the warehouse. Having to be stored and then eventually shipped and either incinerated or sent to landfill—that's an expense. It's costing them more than the value of the, of the raw material, and even the scrap, the, the non-yardage pieces that are, you know, cut around the patterns. She can sell all of that direct to consumer or direct to other brands, and she's created a, an upside marketplace for all these brands to turn their waste into profit.
2: Well, we're, once again, our, our minds are blown. <laughs> we <We're> all send <sitting laughs> over here, speeches. But, it,
1: but it's so cool to hear, Lisa, that you. It's so cool to hear, Lisa, that you are so enmeshed in the mm-hmm. technology, mm-hmm. the innovation, and you're so passionate about it. How it interfaces with fashion. So, yeah, you've given so many different wonderful examples. So that's just beautiful. Thank you so much. This is great. This Thank is you. so great.
0: Yeah. I love this space, and I think it's the most exciting opportunity in the world to look at this massive ecosystem. If you think about the fashion supply chain, it touches every other industry on the planet, from farming, your uh, cotton growers or uh, cellulose. Some fabrics are now made from trees or wool or llamas, whatever it is. It touches farming shipping, real estate, finance, everything out there in the world, it touches. So frankly, we're at this point in time where because of climate change, trade wars, um, this want of cyber-physical systems, it's all this perfect storm of necessity to reinvent supply chains. We no longer have the luxury of the status quo or even these minor incremental changes that we've been making because our planet actually... Correction, humanity has a ticking clock on our on our expiration date if we don't drastically make some major changes. And so it's insanity to think that we're going to uh, survive by making incremental fixes across a global supply chain with billions of nodes demanding transparency, circularity, sustainability. It's not going to happen. The only chance we have is by this embracing paradigm shift that jump us the solutions that need to exist and looking at them not so much as you can't look at them as the old paradigm. I'm going to design something. We'll figure out how to make it from any resource around the world. No. Now it's more like Project Runway. Here are your constraints designers. Here's your raw materials. Here's the customization. Here's your chemiseiki digital weaving uh, patterns that are possible. Here's your on-demand cut-and-sew that's possible. You know, all these different technologies and
2: that's your toolkit. Now go and design. You know, Lisa, you're the second person on the show who's talked about fashion. Uh, like I said earlier, it was Farifa um, Murdoch, and I see, I can feel the passion and excitement in your voice. And she had the same. <laughs> I mean, I'm, it's unbelievable how both of you are so passionate about fashion and technology. And you know, you spoke mostly more about the supply chain, which I have learned a lot myself. Um, it's just, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show and the energy that you brought to our show. And, and I want to say thank you very much, um, for all that you've mentioned starting from, you know, being a mom and a minority and marriage. And you took your, you know, you, t- you know, you were 37 years old and you decided to just jump into this entrepreneurship piece and, um, I just think I have to commend you. And so you're letting people know it doesn't matter how old you are. You can jump into this whenever you want to and have the passion. And if you have that passion, you can succeed.
0: Yes, absolutely. And, and it, takes, it only takes one person with passion and vision to change the world. Everyone thinks, oh, well, what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. You can do anything as long as you have the passion to convince other people. There's a fine line between insanity and genius. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and I think the only difference is if you can get other people to get on board with your insanity. I
2: love it. I love it. And Lisa, where can we find you?
0: <laughs> I can be found at Lisa Helibo on Twitter and Instagram and uh you can check out my personal website lisahelebow.com or the new york supply chain meetup is tnyscm.com. um where else i am all over linkedin posting a lot and um i will square, start I following you on linkedin my <laughs> I, will
2: find, I will start following you on linkedin well, thank you for joining us. As um, as I said earlier today, you know, we talked about being a mom, a minority in marriage, and how Lisa, you know, built this is is very impressionable career on um, fashion. And um, what some of the things that touched me were, you know, she talked about design thinking, how she's really. Relied on that, and so that could be that one thing you can find that you can rely on. And she said, you know, design thinking has been her source to help her um, throughout her career and also in entrepreneurship. And we talked about the key things that led her to create uh, Refashion. Uh, the dot-com bust, as I you know, most of us in this room and most um, some of our audience members, audience uh, listeners, will remember the dot-com um, boom bust and uh, applying to Techstars, um, having a client who's in the top 10, 1%, and then giving back. We always forget about that piece. You know, we, we have to give back in order to succeed and move forward. And um, starting off as a startup founder and then becoming a VC, I mean, how does that happen? But like you said, <laughs> you, if you're passionate about it, you can make anything happen. And um, you know, taking that experience as a VC, to um, build the first uh, Fashion Tech Accelerator as well and um, refashioned. And the name itself just says so much how she's refashioning a system an old—it's an older word, which I did not know this, <laughs> another thing I learned. I did not know it even existed. I thought you made up that word. <laughs> and um, the Fashion Tech supply chain And how she's, you know, giving homage to all of the things we buy as refashioned. And she talked about how she met her husband, uh, you know, and they created this New York um, tech meetup group and continue to. um...
0: Oh, that wasn't my husband. Oh, my business partner. Business
2: partner. Sorry. Sorry. Her her
0: work husband. Her work husband. Her work yeah.
2: husband. That's Okay. Your, that's I really your, was over here shaking her head. Like, no, no, no. That's not Freudian it. your slip of that the That was my Freudian slip. So, oh, don't oh, go there with me, Christina. Okay. All right. I'm getting back to my wrap-up. <laughs> um, so anyway, the supply chain, um, you know, every, supply chains, people, as you as said earlier, it touches Every aspect of our life, it touches all industries and that we need it until we don't look at it until we need it like air. So, you know, thank you for opening our minds up in this perfect discussion that we've had on supply chains, entrepreneurship, VCs. We really appreciate you being on this show and thank you once again.
0: Thank you for having me. It's been
2: great. So please Look out for our newsletter if you're not on it. Go to our website, Get Found, Get Funded. Get on our newsletter. You can also go to Instagram, LinkedIn. Well, follow me on LinkedIn because that's where you can uh, find more information about Get Found, Get Funded. Also, we are on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you very much for joining us, and um, we're looking forward to the next episode of Get Found, Get Funded.